0: to to use that to introduce this topic for our discussion point today, which I've entitled Just a Prophet. They didn't know him. And what I'd like to do, if you'll bear with me, is to actually read some of the um, story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's really incredible what theologians have done with this story, because they've argued about who these disciples were. One of them was Cleopas, we know that because he's named. <clears throat> Some say he's the same person who's recorded as a witnessing the death of Jesus on the cross. Some say his companion was possibly his wife. There's just so much written. But actually, I don't think that matters. Because God has this habit of telling us exactly what it is we need to know in his words. And uh, what we do know is that these were two disciples and they had almost certainly witnessed or if not witnessed directly, they had heard about the crucifixion of Jesus. They'd also heard, and it's recorded in this story of course, that Jesus, or at least the tomb was empty and that uh, Jesus was no longer In the tomb. And let me just read Luke 24 from verse uh, 13 down to about uh, verse 23. Now behold, the two of them, these are the two disciples, were travelling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which I believe means hot springs, so it must have been a place to go for a healthy spa or something like that, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he, Jesus, said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? I just have to stand under the light. I can't read it properly. I need my glasses. <coughs> and, and he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels and who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now so I, read, I read that as I would normally read it, and uh, I actually glossed over what I, what I think is a very, very important phrase. So they said to him, this was in answer to his question, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And I heard someone actually teaching on this just last week. It was in our chapel at, at CHC. And I read those words and I thought, do you know what? This is typical of half the world today because so many don't actually know who Jesus was. These were disciples. So they had spent time with Jesus. How much time we're not told in this record. But they must have known Jesus personally, otherwise they would not have been his disciples. They would have almost certainly um, been as it were, Jewish Christians, although that's probably actually not true because Christianity probably hadn't started at that time, but they were certainly followers of Jesus and they would have known all of the Old Testament prophecies, what we call the Old Testament today, they would have known all the prophecies about Jesus and they would have known what he said about himself. Right? One of the reasons he was crucified is that he said of himself, I am the son of God. And yet here they are saying he was a prophet, just a prophet. Certainly mighty indeed in words. So they had seen miracles. They must have witnessed healing. They must have been amazed at the wisdom with which he spoke. They must have been amazed at his knowledge of the law. The way he lived his life, because Jesus would have lived his life according to all the Jewish law. So they were impressed, but they were impressed by a man, and they called him a prophet. Let me read another passage. This is also in Luke, Luke chapter 9, um, beginning at verse 18. This is recorded in other gospels as well, actually in more detail. This is recorded in the in the gospel just after he'd fed the five thousand. Now, this doesn't mean it happened straight away, by the way, because the way in which um, literature was written in um, those times, they didn't actually construct a narrative in the way that we do. You know how we're always told to have you know an introduction, a body with your five points, and then a conclusion? That's not actually how they wrote back in that day. And and so often, a record was not necessarily strictly chronological, and it was often ideas put together. So, we don't know for sure whether this happened straight after Jesus fed the 5,000 or not, although it's recorded in the very next verse. And so straight after the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, as recorded in the Gospel, it says from verse 18, And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He, Jesus, said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Other Gospels record that Jesus turned to Peter and said, Flesh and blood have not told you this, but my Father in heaven. So, even when Jesus was walking this earth as God incarnate, as a man Even when he was doing miracles and the the Bible records over and over and over again that all who came to him, he healed. We have no idea how many miracles he performed because the Bible simply isn't big enough to record them all. So people saw these miracles, but they didn't actually connect Jesus with the Messiah and despite the fact that he himself made that claim "I am the Son of God," people didn't believe he was who he said he was so they had all this evidence massive evidence and yet so many didn't identify him as Jesus the Messiah and uh, you know we can reflect on that and think they were pretty stupid were't they to have had all of the prophecy in the Old Testament, to have had the opportunity to actually, almost literally, rub shoulders with Jesus, and yet they just thought him of him as a, as a prophet. Even these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they thought of him as a prophet. Well, let's have a little look and see what people think of him today. This is from the most recent National Church Life Survey, 2011. There is one just about to happen now. They they do it um, right after the census, actually. So within the next month or so, there'll be a new National Church Life Survey. But um, I've just taken one chart out of a publication that the National Church Life Survey people uh, put out. And, and this one is of people who go to church. Um, no, I beg your pardon. This is, this is of Australians. They don't all go to church. That's the dark green bar. I was looking at so many charts yesterday. I'm getting a bit mixed up now. But, you can see that uh, people who attend church weekly or more often have a strong belief that the resurrection was an actual historical event. It's actually 71%. You can just, if you look very carefully, you can see 71% of uh, people who go to church weekly or more frequently strongly agree that the resurrection was an actual historical event. And those who go at least monthly, 34%. Are those who are infrequent attenders, 10%. And those who don't go at all, only 4%. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It might be a bit surprising that less than three-quarters of those who attend church weekly or more often believe in the resurrection, that there's 25% who don't. So you've got to wonder what they actually believe in. Um, And then you come down here to strongly disagree with the historical fact of the resurrection. And uh, of those who are going to church, it's about uh, 3%. Of those who never go to church, it's 31%. Now it's quite interesting, I think, because what it implies is, and there is actually another another chart that shows that a lot of people who never go to church do believe in the resurrection. And you, you can do surveys; they believe, you know, in God. And or, there's a lot of people who have religious beliefs, but they don't actually express them by being engaged in a local church. They don't read the scriptures and so on. Yet they still actually have some kind of belief. I had a look at some other data. Uh, this is from the Barna Research uh, Group. Now, they, they do a lot of really outstanding research, mainly in America, and I can't find this replicated for for Australia. So, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, they were coming to terms with this idea of the, the resurrection. They thought he was a prophet. A lot of people Jesus was a prophet. So there's a lot of people who have respect for Jesus for what he said they believe he was a very wise man they believe that he had keys for good living but they believe he was just a prophet so the the light um, turquoise bar here is all adults in the United Kingdom I couldn't find this for Australia the uh, Slightly darker one, it's, it's uh, white UK adults, and the dark bar is UK ethnic minorities. You can see, and this is the population as a whole, 29% uh, believed he was a prophet or spiritual leader, but not God. And, but uh, 43% of ethnic, Jesus is God in human form who lived among people in the first century. Uh, 22% believe or strongly uh, believe that that is true. Uh, oh, Sorry, 20, that's 22% of all UK adults. And Jesus is a normal human being, not God, 17%. So there's a variety of of beliefs. And the reason why I wanted to show that is just really to underscore the point that, you know, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus weren't so stupid after all. The fact is, It's difficult to actually believe in the gospel. It's difficult to actually believe that there is a God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die a substitutionary death for us. It's difficult to believe that God had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, to defy natural death and to raise him from the dead. It's difficult to believe that Jesus was the person he said he was, despite the fact that the Bible is one of the most historically attested documents that we have today. There is more evidence to suggest in the, historic, the historical accuracy of the Bible than many, many other ancient texts. So it ticks all the boxes as far as historical um, accuracy is concerned. And yet, we still have so much trouble believing that Jesus is really who he said he was. And what I want to um, draw us towards is the idea that if all this is true, if the resurrection is true, Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is the person he said he was, then Jesus is the person of the Godhead with whom we can have a personal relationship actually by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Because in Ephesians, the Bible tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and we are seated in heavenly places with Him. So that's where we are spiritually. We're actually siblings of Jesus Christ. If we're siblings, then we actually have the capacity a personal relationship and that's what is missing in so many people's understanding of Jesus these disciples saw him as a prophet not as someone with whom to have an intimate personal relationship and that's what really struck me last week as I was listening to someone else talk about these disciples on the road to Emmaus and and summarise all of the discussions that theologians have had and I thought the one thing that's missing in this whole discussion is the fact that they thought he was a prophet. So what I want to do is actually do a quiz with you. This is not a quiz for which there are right and wrong answers and I'm not going to pick it up and, and um, score it or anything like that. This is for you personally. I actually do this with my students because particularly my postgraduate students I have a, a a foundation subject that they have to do which really goes through the the basis of our religion that is Christianity as a religion and one of the most important aspects of our religion that separates it well this um, this little quiz is actually about what we call worldview. Lots and lots of definitions of worldview, but it's really the way in which we filter our experience of the world and everything we learn about the world. In terms of philosophy, it's, it's what they would actually call pre-knowledge. We actually form our knowledge based on some presuppositions and those are our most fundamental of beliefs about things like why I'm here, what's the point in life and what happens when my um, physical life is over. There are lots and lots of different ways in which we can actually classify worldview. This is based on just four. But there are books and books and books, and um the way in which it's classified is not all that important as long as we've got a category that talks that allows us to acknowledge that the Christian faith is focused so strongly on the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so the a um, responses are actually consistent with naturalism. Now, the the philosophy of naturalism essentially says there is nothing spiritual; everything is physical or natural. So, there's no supernatural, and that essentially we can explain everything by natural laws, so physics and chemistry and biology and so on, and. It portrays a human being actually as simply being a bunch of electrical impulses, chemical reactions and um, hormones. So we're hormones, chemicals and electrical impulses essentially and that basically explains everything. That's a very prominent worldview today. Uh, A lot of people essentially explain everything on the basis of chemistry, biology, physics, those, if you like, hard sciences. And there's no room at all for anything spiritual. Uh, Once we die, we simply get eaten up by the worms, we decay, and we might make good fertiliser for a rose bush or something like that. The next category, which is the B in that little questionnaire, is animism. And uh, animism essentially explains anything that's unexplainable in purely natural terms on the basis of spirits that are everywhere. And, you know, if you go back in history long enough, even in the sort of Western countries, diseases and sickness were explained away by animal spirits. Animal spirits were these things that got inside you. They were spiritual beings that got inside you and cause the symptoms of, of illness. And of course there are many uh, tribes these days that we tend to think of, I suppose, as being primitive, that have animist beliefs. So every everything that you can't explain by a purely physical uh, phenomenon is just explained by spirits. And spirits are whimsical, they are, they are not consistent and they are certainly not Motivated by love. In fact, more often than not, spirits are motiva- motivated by by evil. Then the next category is um, a category we call theism, and theism. Uh, it's not. No, far oh, sorry, far eastern thought. Big if hard not. I should be reading my notes. Eh? far eastern thought, and, and this is really only a very brief summary. Basically, says that we're all part of the cosmos. We're all part of the cosmos. So we don't actually have any individuality and actually what we might experience is not really an experience at all and that there really is nothing objective. It's all kind of melded into this um, cosmos. And so what we actually do in the Far Eastern uh, religions, is we remove ourselves from the reality of life and somehow have an existence which is separate from, from life. So we tend to deny things like uh, illness and we tend to uh, denigrate or downplay the importance of our physical being, our body and so on. And so we do things like wear the Hare Krishna gear and walk up and down the street banging drums and all of that kind of thing. Um, and one of the issues with actually all of these um, world views is that we don't have any control. In naturalism, if I'm violent, if I go rob the bank, if I rape somebody, if I um, live a homosexual lifestyle, whatever, it's all explained. By natural phenomena. It's all explained by my genetic makeup, or it's all explained by what's happening with electrical impulses in my brain, etc., etc. So I don't have any control over what I do. No control, no responsibility. And it's similar in animism. I've got no control It's these spirits that are floating around everywhere that have. And in the Far Eastern um, religions, well, I'm not really experiencing this anyway. Or I can have a transcendent experience where I'm not really sick, or I'm not this, I'm not that. So, again, I've got no responsibility. Then we come into um, theism. The, The central idea in theism is that there is a God who created. A God who created. And... Christians believe in the God who created. But in theism, the God who created is actually the God up there. And we can apprehend that God intellectually, but not in the sense that we have a spiritual connection, a personal day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship. And uh, that's level D, if you like, um, in that questionnaire. And then the one which is totally consistent with the idea that yes, there is a God who created, but it's also that there is a God who desires to express His love for us through personal relationship, and that's called relational revelation. Now I'm not going to pick up those questionnaires, that's just for you privately and I wouldn't go and do damage to myself if you didn't get all um, option E's in there and not many people do. Not many people do because it's actually very common for us to develop a concept of God who is thoroughly external to us and he's the God up there, creator, sustainer, but we tend often, and as Ainsley pointed out in her communion message, we, we still see ourselves as sinners separated from God by sin. And as Ainsley illustrated with the, and it was nice to have blue blood, royal blood of Jesus, <laughs> that we see that just covering, covering the sin, but not actually changing the sinner. And the whole point, of Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father where we and we're sitting with him in heavenly places is that we are changed and we become beings who are actually capable of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So um, I don't want anybody to feel any sense of condemnation. That's not the point here at all. But the point is because of your experience, just like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, they saw Jesus as a prophet. They weren't wrong, he was a prophet, but they didn't have the fullness of understanding of the deep, deep truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we might leave it there because we've now gone over time. We don't like to go over time because if we go over time all the time, you won't accept the invitation next time. <laughs> I like this little cartoon here too because I think this is the essence. You see, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. You know, you can only develop the capacity within yourself to fully consummate your relationship with Jesus Christ if you time in the Word and if you spend time in prayer. Because eventually you'll get that revelation of what it means to have a personal relationship. And I've shared with you many times that, you know, I talk to God when I'm driving to work because I need His guidance even in terms of what lane on the motorway to take so I don't get caught up in traffic or have a prank or anything like like that. So I think we might um, leave it there. But just before you go, I do want you to have a look at the little promo for our time of connection oh. yeah. don't you like the